Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is Diligent Corporation's President and COO, Lisa Edwards. Diligent Corporation is the largest governance, risk, and compliance, GRC, SaaS provider, serving over 23,000 organizations around the globe. Lisa is responsible for commercial growth and performance. Prior to joining Diligent, she served as EVP of Strategic Business Operations at Salesforce. Lisa also held leadership positions at Visa, KnowledgeX, and co-founded Value Bond. Prior to the company's acquisition by Knight Capital, Lisa received a bachelor's degree from Stanford University and an MBA from Harvard Business School. She serves on the board of directors at Colgate Palmolive Company and is deeply involved in two nonprofits where she previously served on the board, Playworks and the Presidio YMCA. So Lisa, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Thanks so much. I'm uh, thrilled to be here. Yeah, I remember my the very, very, very first business book I ever read was What They Don't Teach You at Harvard Business School. <laughs> And uh, I read it for two reasons. One, I was, or three, I guess I was kind of, no, two, I was really enthralled with the whole idea of sports, sports management and sports marketing Mm -hmm. and Mark McCormick had written it. And it was just a fascinating read. And then the second reason was I knew I was never going to be smart enough to go to Harvard. So I thought maybe I'll get a glimpse. What was it like? You know, it was two of the best years of my life. Uh, It was great. Um, I think that, these things are a little bit what you put into it is what you get out of it. And I would say actually the value of Harvard business school is some of the content. um, But increasingly that content is available online in, you know, in your books. Um, But there is this very interesting phenomenon of the network that is created with, um, you know, hundreds of people um, and knowing people in nearly every major city in the world, knowing people in many of the major corporations in the world that have risen to leadership. And, you know, it creates just an interesting feedback loop for one thing and a, a way to bounce ideas off of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, you know, is, is a way to get stuff done. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny when I'm asked these days, should I go to business school? I hesitate which I never did 10 years right. ago. I would say, yes, go to business school. It'll open up options for you. It's a great stamp on the resume. Go, yep. go do it. Now I say, well, what do you want to get out of it? And do you think you can get into a top 10 school? And is it worth putting your career on hold for two years? And I, I ask a lot more of those qualifying questions. I still think it's a great experience for some people, but if it is just to learn how to do, you know, a discounted cash flow analysis uh, because you want to change careers, there's lots of ways to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I think the ROI component of it is different now. And I'm, I'm a little older than you. When I went to school, um, we had to be the smartest person in the room because there was no access to information. If, you know, there was no Google, uh, I didn't even, I had no computer in university. I had a typewriter. And when I went to the library to grab that one book that I needed, it was always checked out. So you had to be the smartest person. You had to be able to memorize it all. But I think to your point now that ROI might be different. Do you bias against the, the 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 education system now like do you hire people who don't have it on purpose in any way 
You know, sometimes I actually, I do like, a, I, I like a hustler. Mm. Um, and so I actually love, uh, you know, stories of, um, you know, first generation Americans of, of people who I, I still love people who got themselves to Harvard, but did you get there like scrapping and hustling? Right. Um, and you know, did it show some grit and some, uh, uh, you know, some, some different kind of abilities than just being smart. There's a lot of smart people in the world. Um, but like, do you have street smarts and can you, uh, can you adjust on the fly and, you know, can you take a punch to the face and keep going? You know, it's, uh, you need those people around. It's interesting. I I read an article about, um, it was the Taj hotel group and they said they over in India and they never hire anyone from the big cities. They only hire people from the small towns and villages because they believe the core values are still intact. And I saw something in your prep that you actually really hire based on core values as well. Can you speak to that? How you, how you look for it, how you interview for it and um, maybe when you make decisions not to hire because of them. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, it's critical for culture to get people into your orbit who, um, not necessarily think exactly the same as you, you actually don't want that. You don't want uniformity of thought, but you do sort of want uniformity of, you know, if there's basic, uh, ethical, um, you know, things that you want to look out for and, and for, for passion and for, uh, people who, you know, share goals um, and who all want to go to the same place. Um, so, you know, I might ask people, um, you know, not like, you know, walk me through your resume. I usually do that for 30 seconds, like just to get the, you know, but I can read like everybody else and LinkedIn exists. Um, so I might just ask them, like, what are you passionate about? Like, what do you really care about? What's, um, you know, what's something that if, you uh, you know, you had all the extra time in the world and you didn't have the financial constraints of having a job, you would want to go try to solve what's a, you know, what is a problem out there that would be interesting for you? And, you know, I think you get back uh, interesting, interesting questions. We have a guy on our team who asks um, a question that I, I kind of like just to hear the answer, not necessarily that there is a right answer, but do you love to win or do you hate to lose? Um, that's a good one. Um, and you know, I don't even know what the answer is for myself because I, I, I'm both for sure. I'm both. I'm Um, both. Yeah. And I I don't think we're straddling on that one either or hedging. I think that's actually just, maybe it's more true. Like I don't, I, I, I'm definitely not tilted in one direction or the other, but yeah, I hate to, I hate to lose, but I drive to win, but it's not all about winning, but you know, I I don't really want anyway. Yeah. It's interesting. I want to go, I want to ask you a little bit about diligent. Then I want to go back into kind of what got you here. So go back into some of your career and talk about maybe some of your learning at Salesforce as well. Tell us what diligent is in kind of layman's terms. So everyone understands. Lisa froze. There, I'm joining from another computer. Yep, that's okay. I, I pressed pause when um, something happened and disconnected. So, so you, uh, so you'd ask me what what diligent does. Um, yeah. 
So, you know, every company in the world needs to sort of manage themselves. Um, so what we do is we provide software in the cloud that allows companies to manage their board of directors, so hold board meetings that are secure, um, to manage their entities and subsidiaries. So multinationals in particular have uh, entities around the world. If you have uh, operations in a specific country, you have to have a structure there and you have to manage that structure according to the rules and regulations of that country. Um, they need to do um, auditing. They need to do SOCs. They need to do um, compliance. They need to check their supplier base for um, third parties who they shouldn't be working with. And so our software really does all of that. Um, it's kind of the, uh, the, the underbelly of, um, of, of running a company. It's all the stuff on, um, you know, doing things right, following process, um, working with your audit and, you know, your audit team internally and your auditors externally and, um, and making that all happen seamlessly and easily. And so your, your clients would typically be larger organizations, correct? really runs the gamut. Um, certainly um, larger organizations, uh, we have something like 70% of the Fortune 1000 are customers, so for sure, um, but also uh, mid-market. Smaller companies use some of our tools like our cap table management and um, some of our secure messaging and, and secure file share and, and things like that. But medium-sized companies still, it applies to them to, uh, to use some of the audit and compliance tools, some of the supplier third-party risk tools and enterprise risk management. Um, and, uh, and then if a company is prepping to go public, for sure they want to think about, um, you know, do I have a board of directors in place and a way to manage them? Um, you know, have I complied with SOCs? And, and then our most recent one is on ESG. So uh, ESG, um, you know, I think it used to be a nice to have. It's increasingly becoming a must have. So if you look at some of the things that are coming down, like uh, if the SEC mandates reporting on climate um, then certainly we'll see many more companies uh, get on board with needing to do this and then having to have a third party, their auditor, do assurance on it and test it. Um, they're also just increasingly, things like cost of capital is increasingly being tied to diversity on your board and diversity in your leadership team. So I think wow. it's, it's becoming, I know it's crazy. Um, <laughs> so it's becoming really, uh, you know, really critical to manage that stuff and to watch it and to measure it. The cost of capital is being tied to diversity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you look at, there was a big announcement by Carlisle even last week about uh, some of the things that they're thinking about in that in that area. I encourage you to look it up. It's a great article. Wow, that's super cool. All right, tell me a little bit about what you learned when you were at Salesforce. When were you? How long were you at Salesforce? I was at Salesforce for eight and a half years. So I had a good, good, solid run when I started. We were, I don't know, about 8,500 people and maybe 3 billion of revenue. And when I left, we were calling 22 billion of revenue and 55,000 or so people. So it was, uh, it was a crazy, crazy time. Um, and, um, you know, I just, I feel incredibly grateful for, for having, uh, having, you know, had a, had a, a seat on the rocket ship for that one. Yeah, my girlfriend worked there for a little bit and then she led Salesforce inside of Ticketmaster for a couple of years, all the engineering groups. So she had some huge things to say about it as well. What do you think you pulled from, from there in terms of your leadership skills? What, what skills did you pull from there? Well, you know, I think part of 
leadership is you learn by example. And I worked for a couple of great people. Um, I, the, the first CFO I worked for, uh, Graham Smith, uh, one of the, the smartest guys in the world out there uh, as it relates to SaaS finance um, and just a lovely person as well. Um, the next CFO I worked for, Mark Hawkins, um, I feel like Mark's gift was um, people like that guy could enter a room and there'd be a hundred people in there and he would know all of their names. Like he just, he had this sort of crazy ability to remember like little details about people and, and it showed he cared about his team and, uh, and they remembered it. And so that was amazing. And then I worked for Keith Locke, who I think, um, you know, I think is one of the, the best leaders out there. Um, and just um, being at the, you know, at the at the elbow of one of the the greatest, um, first of all, one of the greatest salespeople in the world, um, and uh, and you know one of the one of the the best leaders in in an absolute basis. Um, you know, people would people would step into a, in front of a truck for him, and so you know, just uh, seeing that on a day to day basis. Um, was incredibly valuable for me for kind of building out my um, sort of personal style and the things that I wanted to take take with me. And, and like everything else, you know, we talked about childhood earlier, you know, there are things the way your parents re- reared you that you say, like, I want to make sure I do that. And there are yep. things about the way your parents reared you and I'm going to make sure I don't do that. So, um, so, you know, I think um, it was, uh, it was a great time to, uh, to be exposed to some of those people. With, with the large organizations working at Visa and Salesforce and, and now at Diligent, how do you prevent politics from creeping into the business areas that you're working in? It's definitely easier when it's smaller. Um, you know, uh, I think part of, part of it is um, making sure everyone understands their lane and what they're responsible for. Um, and what they're not responsible for so that um, there isn't, I think sometimes politics come into play when there is uncertainty or, um, you know, people aren't sure if they're supposed to be doing something or not supposed to be doing something. Um, so I think providing a certain level of clarity there. And then I think there's a certain aspect to it. Um, you know, you got to quote Bill Belichick on this, do your job. Um, leave out the, leave out the F-bomb in the middle. Um, the, people need to do the right thing. And that goes back to the hiring for values. And, um, you know, there is, um, there was this great guy at, at Salesforce. He's not, he left to be CEO of, I won't remember the company. Um, uh, Micro's mom, you can look it up. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, you know, he was a nuclear submariner and he used to say uh, in meetings, it's, it's ship, shipmate self. And that is the order that you take care of things. And, Having drilling that into a team and telling them, look, this is uh, if you take care of your ship and you take care of your shipmate, you will take care of yourself. This will get taken care of. But I also think showing positive intent in that area. So you can't constantly ask people to do the right thing uh, to their own self disinterest. Um, so making sure that there is a cleanup crew to go back in and say, listen, I know you, uh, 
you know, I know you rolled over on a, on a sales deal to give the sale to another region because it was being let out of there, even though it was originally your customer, I'm going to get you paid too. Like there's stuff like that, that can, and those stories go around, like Mm. people know, people Mm. know like, okay, if she asks me to do something and it's the right thing for the company, I'm going to do it. And I, I have to have confidence that that's not going to, you know, hit me in the in the, in the pocketbook or um, hurt my career or whatever it is. Like you've got to make sure that you you build trust and you sort of put you know you put chips into the trust machine um, so that when you ask people to take one for the team, they're willing to do it. How that's that's amazing. How do you how do you build the trust and the alignment with the CEO? I mean, I've always believed that the the role of the COO and CEO is to be that almost yin and yang partnership. How do you build the trust with your CEO and stay aligned with them? It's you know I think part of it is um, it's it happens over time. You know, it's not necessarily a day one thing, um, but. It's a tr- it's a trust building exercise as well, and it's a friendship at the end of the day. But it's a funny friendship, you know. I remember when I was first going to work for Keith Block, one of his sort of uh, trusted uh, uh, group came to me and said, "Keith is my friend, um, and I would do anything for him, and I love him, uh, but I never forget that he's my boss too." Um, and you know, there is that. Um, there's that fine line. Like I think as a, as a second in command, you are, um, you have an obligation to dissent and you have an obligation to not be a yes man, as it were, or a yes woman. Um, and, um, you can take that. Um, and, and I absolutely hundred percent play that role. I say, but what about this? But what about that? I don't agree. Uh, but when, uh, the door opens and two people walk out, um, you better be in agreement. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think it is like that there's a time and a place to dissent and a time and a place to get in line. And I, I don't, I don't mistake those times and places. <laughs> I, I spoke about that in, in one of my books called meetings suck. I, I wrote about something in meetings that when you walk out of the discussion, when you walk out of the debate, you have to have consensus. You can't go back to your team and say, Oh, well, I disagreed. Like that's just, it's it's it destroys trust in the organization. So do well, it's you also just, cowardly. I mean, yeah. it's also sort of like you know what? Like if if I feel that strongly that I don't agree, um, if it's something if it's something existential or moral, uh, then maybe I should leave, right? And if it if it's not, I need to get in agreement. But I can't say like, oh, I didn't make this hard decision. That was somebody else. Right. Like, like I'm great. It's just that somebody it's else them. is making me do this thing. Like, no, no, no. We're all on the same team. Like, we're all making it happen. It also makes the leader look bad too. They think they're somehow protecting themselves, but they're not. So will you dissent in front of the rest of the leadership team? Will you, you know, dissent with the CEO or do you do that more privately? Like do you operate kind of like mom and dad won't argue in front of the kids? They argue privately or should? A little bit of both. I mean, I think if it were something very serious, um, I would probably say that's a private conversation, but if it is, you know, kind of um, debating a feature function of a product or something like that, then I think it's, I, I also view the role as, um, so there's dissent and then there's also conversation starter. Like is if, if the, if the CEO makes a big proclamation about something, 
Um, and everyone's just kind of sitting there processing and spinning. Uh, and I think they might be processing and spinning. I might ask a provocative question to, to start a debate because I think even if the answer ends up being where we originally started, the debate is healthy and understanding all the mm. potential places that you know things could go awry is super healthy. Can you give us an example of that? That's intriguing. Yeah, let's see. Um, uh, you know, I think and so recently, um, you know, we uh, so so we we do a lot of work with um, uh, you know different size companies and. Uh, and we have, you know, we have a product um, that, you know, we want to get more penetration on. And there's sort of this lively debate about how do we get more penetration? Do we, um, do we give it away for free? Do we, um, you know, try to uh, work with VC firms? And, um, you know, I think that uh, there's a lot of passion um, around the product because I think there's many of us who really love it and believe in it. Um, but it's also for the development team, you know, a, well, do we want to invest in that? Because we've got all this other stuff going on. And so, um, so I think it is, um, you know, so when it is like, okay, um, on this product, we need X, Y, and Z. Um, and, and, you know, you can kind of see the development team's face fall because they're thinking, there aren't enough people to do that. Like, right. there's, not, there's not enough warm bodies in the room right. to do this. Um, then it, you know, then, then sort of asking the question like, all right, so what does that do to your, so understanding that that's what the CEO wants. What does that do in front of the CEO, in front of everyone? What does that do to your prioritization? Do right. we have to reprioritize something? Do we have to take something off your list? Do you need to, would you need to hire someone to, to deliver everything that you already promised us and all this stuff that we just asked you to do? Um, you know, like how, uh, how are you thinking about this in terms of, you know, where it falls and when you're able to do it? So I think it's, you know, it's, it's expanding the conversation to the sausage making a little bit. Well, and you've, you're also just being empathetic to the needs of that team and to the restraints the team has. And because we've all been through them, so you know what they are. And then, and then you're also just being very aware of the body language and kind of the, you know, using your emotional intelligence to continue it, which is good. We're often, and, and I think this is probably more true of the entrepreneurial CEO than the professionally managed company CEO, that entrepreneurial CEOs tend to be a little bit more ADD and a little bit more bipolar. And I think the professionally <laughs> managed CEOs tend to be a little bit more strategic. You know, they, they, Whereas the entrepreneur is like, I just heard this cool thing on a podcast. Let's do this. Like <laughs> you don't have the CEO of diligent coming in saying, I heard yes. something on a podcast and wanting to go to market tomorrow morning. Right. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah. The entrepreneurial organizations, man, it's like, fuck, you got to reel them back in and, and go, it's a great idea, but like that's in two quarters. And they go, oh, right. okay, good. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> squirrel, squirrel. So you mentioned the flywheel in your prep, Jim Collins' concept of the flywheel, and that, that Diligent has got that kind of flywheel happening right now. What Can you walk us through what your flywheel is? Yeah, I mean, it is really uh, when, first of all, I think it starts with really good product market fit. Like if you don't have a good product, um, it's, uh, it's hard to get the flywheel going. But, you know, I think that there's also... There's also eras. Um, there's also sort of times when things are right and times when 
uh, things are not right. And I'll, I'll give you an example from earlier in my career. We built this amazing exchange for fixed income securities in 2000. Um, and it was awesome. Uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, 2001 happened. Um, and I always say, and then Steve Ballmer stood up on March 15th and said, there's an internet bubble. And we're like, no. Right. Yeah. Well, so that was that was interesting just from a you know a leadership perspective because you know it was really I was the co-founder of the company and um, we got asked by our biggest customer to put another you know at the time it was a lot of money now everyone kind of would just go like that's pocket change for for raising money but it, and to put another ten million dollars on your balance sheet we were profitable we were doing great we said we don't need it but it like it wiped out the the ownership uh, of the of the leadership team um, and right. you know the. Um, the preference hurdle on it became sort of like, well, is there anything in this for us, you know? So, um, so you know, I definitely, uh, uh, I don't remember where that was going, but. Um, <laughs> it was about the flywheel. The oh, the flywheel. flywheel. So, um, yeah, yeah but, but so the point on that was there's a right time and a wrong time. And, you know, that company, we sold it to Knight Capital. Knight Capital resold it for, I don't know. 50 times what they paid us for it. So, um, so, you know, that was the right time. Um, the, um, but I think like the flywheel is about, so good product market fit starts to accelerate sales. And if you can get the sales motion, right. And you can get the right level of salespeople in. And you, um, for us, that was, um, you know, uh, getting the enterprise sales motion down and getting the cross sell upsell down. Because we have this amazing portfolio of stuff. Um, surprisingly, we're, we're, we sell more new logo, right? So we're, <laughs> so it's sort of like, okay, let's train everybody. And, and part of that was just a, a siloed way of going to market. So as we broke down those silos and said, you can carry everything in your bag. And if you have a customer who's interested in governance, risk, and compliance, you can sell them all of those products and ESG. And um, and that's and and just something as simple as doing the enablement and creating the right compensation structure and teaching the sales team what we wanted. So that then starts to accelerate sales. So then sales accelerate and all of a sudden you need more people because, okay, we've proven that if you put another body into the field, you can sell more. So now how do we get more bodies? Like, okay, now we've got more bodies. Now we can sell more. Yeah. If we can sell more, then we create more cash flow. We can invest in the product more. We can do more new products. We can do acquisitions. And so it all starts to build on itself. And uh, it becomes a lot of fun, honestly. Now, you guys, you, you joined in the middle of COVID. So I would imagine that pre-COVID, they were more location-based did and then what the hell happened what what did you walk into a complete virtual company how many, how many employees ballpark uh 1800 okay so 1800 remote employees yeah yeah like, it was weird you know um i will say um well first of all when i was being recruited I, it was very much, you know, I, in terms of our earlier conversation about building trust and having it be a relationship, I mean, I, I've now known Brian, the CEO, for a number of years. And I first met him at a conference and he had sort of floated like, hey, I might be looking for this. And I said, you know, I love my job. I'm good. Um, and then, you know, he floated it again. And I said, well, you know, I might be interested in looking at some stuff, but I'm not moving to New York. And he called me back again a couple months after that and said, well, you know, COVID has kind of taught us that we might not need you to be in New York. And so for me, COVID 
uh, opened up an opportunity that I probably wouldn't have considered and wouldn't have considered me, um, you know, prior to pandemic. Um, that said, what a weird thing to do to start a new job in right. pandemic, right? So I early on um, said, uh, you know, I was trying to be quite um, diligent <laughs> uh, with uh, with COVID because I, I, my husband's got some new uh, stuff going on. And uh, so, I, you know, but I said, listen, I'm willing to get on a plane and fly to fly to DC if everyone else is willing to, the, the bulk of the leadership team was DC and New York. So people are willing to get on trains or drive. Um, and so we met outside for several days, just six or eight of us um, in early, you know, early when I was starting. And that was super helpful to me just to create a tiny bit of the, mm. you know, non-video relationships and um, to build a little bit of that glue. Uh, but, you know, normally by this time, I would have visited all of our major customers. I would have been to all of our sites. We opened a we opened a site that now has several hundred people in Galway and they're all brand new and they've never like mostly never seen each other or us it's it's just Crazy. a strange world but it also proves you know that thing that CFOs used to tell you for years like you don't need to do all this business travel but maybe they were partially right I still think relationships matter and that there is a special uh, chemistry that happens live that you do not get online. But um, I do think that a lot of sales can and should be inside sales. A lot of um, a lot of things that were, you know, travel all day to get to a remote city, um, you know, schlep to the hotel, deal with all the stuff, get there, get exhausted, go to a four hour meeting, turn around and go home, go home and blow two days of your life. Like, I feel like those days are kind of done. I think they're done too. I think there's an ROI component, right? If we only have three inputs into our business of people, time and money, we need to get the highest return on investment. And some of that stuff, yeah, is done. I, I agree. I like the in-person too, but Holy shit. And and then the ability to hire people anywhere. Yeah. So so are you post COVID, whenever the hell that is, are you are you going back to an office? Are you staying as a hybrid organization? I think we're staying as a hybrid organization. We've told people, um, you know, you don't need to come in full time. We've taken polls and the feedback that we've gotten is definitely mixed. There's some people who are like, you know what? I live in a tiny studio and I want to get out of my house and go somewhere. And I want the social aspect, but maybe I don't want it every day of the week. We have other people who told us like I moved. I, uh, I, I'm now living in Florida or I'm now living in, you know, wherever. And, um, and I, I'm not going back into the office and, and we've said, as long as you, you know, make your numbers, um, that, that works for us. What, what are they doing with the Salesforce tower? I have no idea. It's big. It's um, you know, really big. <laughs> you know, I do think that, um, first of all, uh, never underestimate Mark on the off. Right. So, uh, yeah. he'll come up with something. Um, yeah. but I do think that, um, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, parts of it will be used. I mean, I think about like if, if you, in the immediate term in the next year, if people go into the office, they're going to want more space. They're going to, you know, it's there. So, so yeah. even if only half are coming in, if they're taking up twice as much space, then, you know, sort of math says you've got the right amount. So uh, I, I, you know, I suspect that um, everyone, not just Salesforce is, but everybody's real estate strategy will change um, and get more nimble and more flexible and really think about, um, you know, flex spaces and conference spaces and, 
how you can build um, team events, um, and then everybody can go back to wherever it is that they get their job done. Right. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch this transition. Talk about the first 90 days for you coming in as a COO of a, of a company that was already moving at 100 miles an hour and, and you jumped in and as you mentioned, did it during COVID where you didn't have the ability to just wander around the office and get to know people. What did you focus on in your first 90 days? Uh, well, you know, obviously building building relationships on the on the executive team. It's incredibly important um, to learn the business, which I did a lot of that homework before I started um, and asked for a lot of data and a lot of stuff. And, and um, you know, I really made an effort to walk in the door, um, you know, having a pretty good understanding of, of the business fundamentals of the product of all that kind of stuff. Obviously, you learn more over time, but that's just sort of table stakes. Um, you know, really getting to know uh, the team, um, both the, the, the folks that report to me, as well as, you know, just lots of skip levels and lots of, you know, even down, you know, doing group meetings where I couldn't do one-on-ones. Very first thing on the agenda was an all hands just to introduce myself. But, you know, that's sort of, again, table stakes. Um, but I think it's really um, getting to understand um, you know, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, sort of like what's working really well, um, what what is not working really well that I can protect, you know, potentially help with. And um, the other thing that I would say is I, I uh, you know, and maybe this is more of a lesson for CEOs rather than COOs, but um, the, you know, the CEO of the company, Brian, really made it easy for me. I mean, he really um, t- treated, it, treated it as a partnership. And, um, you know, if something came to him that probably should have come to me, he was super good about retraining people, right? Like, so including Lisa, because this is her problem now kind of thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's important, right? Because if people are trained to go to a certain place and there's no retraining, um, I don't get the visibility I need to do my job. And he gets annoyed by the, the stuff that keeps coming inbound that never gets redirected. So there's a little bit of extra effort, I think, at the start to, um, to get people aligned on that. And, you know, there's also, I think, uh, any time you have a growth trajectory, um, especially when you're bringing in new leadership, there can be people who, um, who change leaders. And, um, you know, if they, they went from a direct to the CEO to a direct to the COO, making sure that they view that as additive to their career, because I will have more time to spend with them. I will focus on it. Um, it, You know, the the company is getting too big to have one person do all of this stuff. We need to, um, you know, we need to be able to um, compartmentalize it a little bit more, Uh, making sure people understand that, that this is actually good for them and good for their career, good for the company. I think is really, really important. So this was a new role then you weren't replacing someone. I was not. Um, Whoa, there was that's a, interesting. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that was one of the things that was so interesting to me about this job, I will say, um, because as you'd imagine leaving Salesforce after eight and a half years, like I got a lot of the calls on, um, you know, we need a CEO for this. We need a CEO for that. And, um, you know, it was a little bit of a, you know, check your ego, look in the mirror and think about what you really like to do moment for me to say, like, actually, this this role and this company at the size and trajectory, I mean, 
this has got to be one of the largest SaaS companies in the world. That's that's not public. That yeah. um, is like and and relatively unknown. Like yeah. you know, like there's a lot of brand building to do here. Um, so I just felt like there was so much upside in the opportunity, and um, you know that kind of made it, it kind of made it all worthwhile. But it, you know, there's a a certain amount of ego to 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 check your ego and say like, all right, like I. I am a great number two. I can make uh, I can make the CEO better. Um, somebody used to refer to me as uh, as uh, Keith Block's external CPU. Um, <laughs> That's great. Is <laughs> uh, like he's like he's got like the fastest you know like fastest processor out there, but like he needs more storage. Um, Amazing. So I said like okay, I guess I'll be storage. I guess I can like um, but um, but yeah. So I think you know it's uh, it's just it's 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 a it's it's the role of a lifetime. Interesting that you mentioned the the um the brand building. I was speaking to my girlfriend about this again the other day, Ashley, because she she's been around enterprise for so long. I was intrigued with the Salesforce background, and she's like, "Who the hell is Diligent?" I'm like, "I don't know. I think they're like a two billion dollar SaaS company. Like, how do we not know of them?" So, are you? Yeah. What is the plan around the brand building and the marketing? Yeah. So for sure, we are going to um, invest in it. And I, it goes back to that flywheel. Um, it goes back to there are marketing inputs to that too, that can provide fuel for the fire. Right. Um, so it's just that much easier for, you know, the SDR out there making the cold calls. If, um, if, if the, the, the recipient of that call has heard of the company. Yeah. And so we have this amazing, so part of the brand building is we have this amazing install base. We have, you know, 17,000 companies that use our board portal software that that is some of the most influential uh, people in the world. Um, so these are boards of directors of some of the largest companies in the world. And so some of it is um, what is the appropriate way to, um, to run that land and expand play? Because you do want to be appropriate. Um, you don't want to be like shilling stuff to people all the time. Right. You, you can't um, go to the board members and ask for YouTube video testimonials. <laughs> yeah. They don't buy anything, right. so you know, like, but um, you know, becoming, you know, because we are a trusted brand already. How do we use that to um, to really just show the other things that we have in the portfolio, and just showing what else we have in the portfolio because we are a trusted brand uh, in the company um, helps. But if we have that external, um, you know, sort of more of the marketing approach, and it's just we haven't invested in that side of the business as much. So thinking through, um, if we just did a big um, partnership with Fortune Magazine, um, we are um, we're holding our Modern Governance Summit this uh, this week. Actually, um, we have um, lots of plans for um, we've just kind of overhauled the website. So there's lots of places like that that. We'll be investing over the next year to really get the name out there a little bit more. That's great. Yeah, huge opportunity. So you mentioned that, that you had to kind of do the gut check and decide whether you wanted to go after the CEO roles or the CO roles. I find that like, we have a, a group called the COO Alliance, and we've got 153 COOs from around the world, 17 countries. I'd say 98% of them have no desire to ever be a CEO. The, the, there's nothing about that role that they want. They love being, you know, we're, a couple of them are billion dollar, a couple billion dollar company COOs, and they're quite happy doing it. What is it that, that is so different that keeps you in the COO role, or at least for now? I mean, I guess I'm a little bit of a grinder for one thing, right? <laughs> so I'm just like, I like to get stuff done and do stuff. Um, and um, so, you know, I think so, that's, that's a little bit of it. Um, 
I do. I, you know, I've always been, you know, you said bipolar earlier. I've always been a little bipolar in that, you know, I started my career as a strategy consultant. So I was at Bain and Company um, doing sort of big strategy work. And I still love that part of the business. And I actually think that it's a differentiator when you have an operator who can come in and um, and, and, and go and, and, and pull up and see um, the big picture stuff and set vision and, and, and where are we going? Um, and then how are we going to get there? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know that I, I it's, it's not a, uh, I would say never say never for me on that. Um, uh, I probably, you know, I probably have one or two more big jobs left in me. Um, but, uh, but I do think that I'm super happy, um, at, in that, you know, in the number two role and you don't have to do quite as much of the, uh, you know, care and feeding of the board and, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's yeah. more the the running of the business, which yeah. I is where I really, that's where I love to be. I used to, I used to work behind the scenes with the CEO of Sprint and his second in command for 18 months. And Marcelo, who is CEO, had a business lunch or a business dinner seven days of the week. And so he just said he's only drinking on Friday and Saturdays because he could literally drink 14 meals a day or a week, right? He yeah. had to cut it out. All right. I want to go back to the, the, the Lisa graduating from Harvard or graduating Stanford as well, which is still blows my mind. Um, what advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known back then? Wow. Um, I, I, you know, I'll go back to the networks matter. Um, and I think early in my career, I didn't keep them up as well as I do now. Um, but, um, you know, I think it is, uh, you know, people matter and uh, relationships matter and, um, and making sure you kind of, uh, you know, you're, you're not always just um, taking from, but you're depositing into those relationships, I think can, uh, can be really important. Um, you know, it's funny when, when someone asked me, you know, how do you, how do you think about your career trajectory and your map and what you did? And I feel like there was no plan here. There was no plan because you could not map going from, you know, from Bain to, uh, to a startup in Atlanta and selling that to IBM and starting a company and selling that to Knight Capital and going to Visa and then going to Salesforce. Like, but every single one of those, uh, almost all, like it, with the exception of Bain, which was a, an interview coming out of business school, was a relationship. So, you know, I was at Bain. Somebody called me and said, hey, uh, I think you should look at this company. It's this guy I know and he, he wants to put more money into the business, but he wants a CEO. I was like 27. Like I had no business running a company. Um, but, you know, I sort of on the basis of that relationship went and had that conversation. And then... Um, when we, uh, when we started Knowledge X, it was a business school buddy of mine was at a VC firm who introduced me to that partnership and raised the money for us. Um, then when I started at Visa, it was a, it was another buddy from business school who called me up and said, Hey, I think you did something like this at Bain. Like Visa needs a consultant who does this stuff. And I said, sure. And then, you know, seven years later I, I was there. Um, and then when I, uh, when I left, um, when I left Visa to go to Salesforce, another guy who had worked with me at Visa had gone to Salesforce and they were looking for someone and said, um, Hey, we need somebody that does, you know, your skill set." And I said, I don't want to go back to 
was the armpit of finance. It was, it was, it was finance operations. I, said, I don't want to do that. And they said, well, just come meet Graham Smith. And uh, as I told you, like Graham, I think the, the world of. So I went and met Graham and went like, this guy's amazing. I'll go work for him. So all of these things happened, yeah. um, you know, I won't say by accident, but, um, but it was all, it was all sort of invitation driven. That's, I forget who it was, but they said, you can't plan your, your career in advance. You can only track it in reverse. It might've been Steve Jobs. I don't remember who the heck it was. Lisa Edwards, president and COO for Diligent Corporation. Thanks very much for sharing with us today on the Second in Command podcast. I can't believe it's over already. This is super fun. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. Great ideas. Take care. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.